Hello, you're listening to Thoughts and Feels, the podcast that brings academic scholarship to bear on popular culture and everyday experience. In each episode, I sit down with a scholar to talk about what interests them in order to discover its connections to the world around us. I'm your host, Tim Weatherspoon. We live in an information age. For centuries, information has been recorded, distributed, and preserved through the medium of paper. The past century has seen movements away from paper as an information storage medium in favor of microfilm or digital resources. My guest today is Dr. Diana Lumberg, Assistant Professor of History at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. Dr. Lumberg shares her experience as a historian to highlight some of the cost of this movement away from paper, such as practical and creative difficulties when dealing with non-paper resources. When I work on microfilm, I, I sort of can't be creative with the sources in the same way. Or the information contained in historic papers as artifacts in and of themselves. And relying completely on digital images would result in an actual loss of information about this particular moment in time. All right, so Diana, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. So the story of the move away from paper really begins with microfilm. I think that some of our listeners have maybe never had the distinct pleasure of dealing with microfilm. What can you tell me about it? Tim, I have a story for you about microfilm. It was a dark and stormy day when I received an email from the Harvard Law Library. I had a grant last year to go look at a papers collection held in the law library of one of Harvard Law's former professors, a guy named Zechariah Chafee, who had been a specialist in freedom of speech and then the First Amendment in sort of the early to mid-20th century. So I was all excited to go to Harvard Law because I, I thought it would be a nice library to work at. What'd you find there? Little did I know that the library had microfilmed the Chafee papers. So I got this email. So I thought, you know, I assumed I'd be working on paper. and But it turned out that the library had the, um, the collection was only accessible on microfilm. So when a library has it microfilmed someone's archive, in this case, the archive of Zechariah Chafee, of course, a library would never discard the originals. This is distinct from newspapers, which we can talk about in a moment, where the originals have been discarded. However, at Harvard Law, I could only access the Chafee Papers collection on microfilm. I couldn't look at the originals. And, and libraries have good reasons for doing this. You know, they don't want ostensibly fragile paper to be handled too much. So you say ostensibly fragile paper. Does that mean that the fragility of the paper is perhaps overstated? Well, I think it, it really depends on the kind of paper, uh, what the paper is made with. Paper has been made historically with different types of materials, everything from rags to brasses to, most commonly today, of course, is wood pulp paper. That's been since since the late 19th century, really. So if I go out and pick up a paperback in the airport, it's wood pulp paper. 
Yeah, chances are it's wood pulp paper. Unless you've decided to just bring your Kindle on the plane, Tim. <laughs> what is it like to work with microfilm? Oh, man, Tim, I, I have to say, Harvard Law is a, is a wonderful library to work at. The librarians are extremely helpful. They have relatively detailed finding aids to the microfilm and to the papers collection I was working with, uh, all of which make it much easier to sort of, you know, figure out what to look at. But I have to say, uh, even though they had state-of-the-art microfilm machines, which might sound like an oxymoron, but trust me, it's not. The machines would autofocus, and I could print and scan directly from the machine. I mean, these were the, the dream of microfilm machines. Even still, I, I find it challenging to do research on microfilm, and I think a lot of historians would agree with me there. Right. I just have vague memories myself doing elementary school research projects, finding the old magazine article on microfiche. And I mean, that stuff was just very difficult to read, isn't it? You know, a lot of people who aren't historians, you know, if they find out something that they're interested in is on microfilm, it takes a real commitment to access that microfilm because, because it's unpleasant. You have to focus the microfilm. You don't have the same ability to kind of flip pages or to handle the material physically. And, and so there's something that's simply more challenging about working on, on microfilm. I find that when I work on microfilm, I, I sort of can't be creative with the sources in the same way. Or it's more challenging for me to be creative with sources. So in preparing for this discussion, we both read the book Double Fold by Nicholson Baker. In Doublefold, Baker argues at length that paper, even paper of low quality, is still a higher standard in archive quality than microfilm or other digital alternatives. He argues that libraries discarded paper, particularly in newspapers, because they were worried that the paper was going to decay and fall right out of the binding. I think you've had a lot of experience handling very old paper documents. What is that like for you? I think in large part, it, it depends on how the paper has been stored. I have worked with or handled documents that are, you know, 200 years old. Right. Actually, that was when I, I had a job in a rare books room in college. And, you know, they were relatively readable. Relatively readable. Describe that experience. Well, you have to be a little bit delicate with books that old, but, you know, the paper, you could turn the pages and they were completely readable, actually. Right. Uh, it's just that you had to handle them somewhat carefully. But then I've also had the experience of looking at magazine collections. There was, a, when I was in grad school, the, the library had this run of Life magazine, which started publication in the 1930s. And some of those had yellowing edges and pieces of the magazine were coming off. This was because they were kind of stored on shelves in a room that uh, I don't know if it was temperature controlled. But it, I would say with paper, it really depends on how it's been stored. Right. Even if the pages are yellowed, I think you can sort of filter out that yellowing. Yeah, definitely. And imagine what the original must have looked like. When we read Double Fold, sort of the argument is the danger of the paper decaying itself is overstated. Do you agree with that? 
with paper, it, it can really depend on, um, again, on what the paper was made of initially and how it was stored. Yeah, I hadn't realized before reading that book that a lot of the newspaper collections that libraries used to hold were especially printed on rag stock. In a higher quality paper for the purpose of archive. Yeah, and, and so rag paper tends to last, hold up better than wood pulp newsprint. And then during the massive microfilm projects of sort of the mid-20th century, a lot of that rag stock was tossed out. Oh, what a shame. I'm wondering if you've looked at really old microfilm and if that's also suffering any artifacts of its age. When I was most recently at the Chafee Papers, I think that those had been microfilmed relatively well, but nevertheless, it was simply more tedious to, to kind of work on the microfilm. You know, in, in Double Fold, Baker, Nicholson Baker actually has pictures of microfilmed versions of these turn-of-the-century newspapers, which are really marvelously illustrated, full-color documents. And in the microfilm versions, you can't see the illustrations. Yeah, that's interesting to me. In fact, I read Double Fold on my Kindle, <laughs> and you read a hard copy, and I have no memory of seeing these illustrations. <laughs> so these illustrations did not even make it into the ebook. I can send you a digital photo of them. How's that? Yeah, yeah, that sounds all right. It seems to me that there's an argument that Baker makes not only that the paper itself could outlast the digital or the microfilm in terms of longevity. He also argues that the fidelity itself of the paper. You mentioned before about the illustrations that don't show up in the microfilm. What is greater extents to that loss of information from the original as it's scanned into microfilm or to digital? Well, I can give you a very specific example from my own research. While I was at the UNESCO archive, one of the things I was researching was a paper shortage, newsprint shortage, which was quite severe in Europe right after the Second World War. All right. It lasted on and off from the mid-1940s through the early 1950s. This was a time of austerity in Europe, which had been devastated by the war and, and a lot of places in Europe, including Britain and France, they didn't have hard currency, they didn't have dollars, or they were trying to preserve their dollars to buy sort of essential imports that they needed. So many of them rationed newsprint quite quite strictly. Okay. And the average size of newspapers really shrunk. In Britain, you know, the average newspaper had been 20 plus pages before 1939. And I think in the late 1940s, it was, you know, between six to eight pages. So there wasn't much paper to go around. So how did they cope with that? One thing I noticed when I was in the archive, you could sort of track the European recovery on the paper stock. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that was being used at the time. I mean, in addition to the fact that Newspapers were much shorter. People were kind of using all the different surfaces of the paper. And, you know, you would notice the difference between 
uh, letters coming from the United States tended to be on nicer paper stock. And as the as the years passed and as Europe's economy recovered, I started to notice the paper stock getting nicer. You know that that was being used in Europe. So the physical artifact itself was telling a story about the economic recovery. Exactly. If you're just looking at the microfilm, how much of that would you be able to catch? You wouldn't be able to perceive it. Right. So in other words, digitizing those files and relying completely on digital images would result in an actual loss of information about this particular moment in time. So the paper is the best example of the information itself. Exactly. Can you expand about how your experience is affected reading on a screen versus reading on paper? Here's an example from my own experience. Um, when I was working, I was working at the UNESCO archives. This is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It's based in Paris, and its archives are in Paris. And I had the, the good luck to have a grant to do some work there in person at the archives for several months, a couple of years ago, while I was in grad school. One thing I discovered at the archives, I, I probably read, I don't know, I have a hundred different files. And because I was working on paper, I was able to kind of read across files. So I wasn't just looking for, you know, if a file was about an education conference that was held in 1952 in Nigeria. I, I was able to think not only about that conference, but, you know, I could kind of uh, read the documents very carefully for certain themes that interested me, such as kind of the politics of language, both at UNESCO and during decolonization. And this theme was kind of scattered across multiple files. It wasn't the intention of UNESCO or of of anyone creating these files that that's what you would look for in these files. I guess I was doing what historians might call um, reading against the grain. Okay. That is looking at archival sources in a manner in which those sources weren't sort of created or intended for you to look for. So you're, you're sort of reading against the attentions of the authors or maybe the holder of those files. And I think for historians, this is a particularly powerful technique because you know, it, it allows us to kind of challenge received wisdom, the official kind of stories that institutions and governments tell about themselves. So I can definitely see if you can have all these paper documents laid out before you, how this could be easy to do. But if you are limited to just one screen, how frustrating it must be, particularly if you have to swap out microfilms. It's still possible. You have to be kind of committed to possibly being dizzy a little bit. With microfilm and with digital images as well, I think when people do research, they tend to go in and go out with maybe a set of keywords in mind, something very specific that they're looking for ahead of time. I think in general, you're less willing to kind of be surprised by what you might find. And this is because it's, it's just less less pleasant, I find, working with those kinds of formats. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's like shopping in an unpleasant supermarket. You get what you get, and you leave, 
and you don't browse to see what's on special or what new thing you might enjoy having that day or what surprise you might discover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You missed the perfect avocados in aisle one because the Muzak was so bad. Indeed, indeed. And you also talked about how your creativity is affected when you're dealing with a non-paper object. And even in preparing for this conversation, I experienced something similar. You kept asking me, oh, what page are you on? And of course, Kindle has no page numbers, just a percent complete. And so I had no idea without the physical object that actually the end notes of the book comprise about half of the text. So I would say, oh, I'm about 30%. I thought I must be about 30% through the argument of the book. And I was really wondering, where is this argument going? It didn't make sense. <laughs> It made it very difficult to understand the book, only to find, okay, I got to 50% and that was the last chapter. I missed the climax. I wasn't thinking about the argument in the way the author might have intended. Probably just because I was reading on an ebook instead of with a paper book. You were robbed. Yeah, yeah. There's other research about the difference in our thinking when we read on a screen versus when we read at the paper. It seems to be that there's some research about the way the book feels in your hand, the way you navigate the book. If you are trying to find some particular quote on a paper book, you'll probably remember, oh, it was on the lower left hand of the left page. These days, microfilm is already outdated, uh, but of course the PDF prevails widely. And the e-reader for books is also very important. I got to say, the Kindle is such a mixed bag for me. Indeed, it can be very nice to instantly buy a book, to have it when you need it. And often I prefer digital documents because they're easy to synchronize amongst different uh, devices or computers where if I forget to bring the paper document, but I notice all sorts of trouble. The book I'm reading on my Kindle right now occasionally has several large words in a row and the Kindle fully justifies the text. So it leaves this line of text with huge spaces in it because the Kindle can't typeset. Or if I'm converting PDFs onto the Kindle, it drops letters or inserts random page breaks or things like this. I definitely use digital images and scans of files and articles that I just read online. I think it's hard not to these days if you want to stay current. I had a question for you, actually. When you, and this is about how people read, when you have a scientific paper that you, you really need to read and you know it's really important that you pay attention to it, and maybe take notes. Do you read it on the screen? I'm just curious about what other people do. Or do you print it out? I used to print it out, but lately I read it on a screen. And the reason why is because I'm getting better at reading it on a screen, I think. And I'm using better tools to organize my digital files. But the main reason is just practical. How many times have I wanted to work on that project and left that document in my office or not put it in my bag when I meant to? 
the digital one comes around with me. So I think that's mostly why. But of course, the aesthetic of being able to pencil in margin notes and the way that you recall some some part of that in your mind when you read it on paper is, is much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I'm sort of a dinosaur at this point. If I really need to pay attention to a document, I, I do tend to print it out and read it on paper. I ended up scanning a lot of the microfilm files from the Zechariah Chafee papers at Harvard. Or not a lot, but I scanned you know, a substantial number of photographs, scans of the microfilm. And the ones that I really had highlighted in my notes as being important, I have to say that I printed them out to read because it was just easier for me to make connections. I think everyone will agree with that. It seems like part of this move away from paper, uh, we've lost something in terms of a tactile aesthetic or a way of thinking about the information that is stored there. But the reason why we move away from paper is for a conservation purpose, ostensibly, that we want to be able to preserve the information or disseminate it more readily and more easily. So if we can consider a sort of cost-benefit analysis, what are you thinking about that? I think you're right. I mean, I think in certain ways, digitization has the potential to democratize access to information and to the world's knowledge. However, I, I think that there are certain ways in which this is more of a more rhetorical than it is reality. Uh, there was a book published recently in the past 10 or 15 years, the English translation in the past 10 years, by, by a French historian named Jean-Noël Genini, who he argues that the kind of universal knowledge that Google says it's sort of peddling is in fact not that universal. Oh, really? He looked for uh, the, the scholar, and he's also a librarian, a very important librarian in France, and he looked at the, the digitization work that Google had done to that point. Now, this is about 10 years ago, mind you, so things, things have probably changed a bit. But what he found is that it was heavily biased towards English language sources, and that the, even the searching algorithms that were being used were pointing you first towards certain sources and, and not others. So I think that, you know, digitization, it, it can be a really important tool, but we'll never have a totally inclusive body of digital documents or, or even published books to say nothing of materials that are held in archives that, in my opinion, will probably never be digitized. As we move to digital, a lot of us think of this as somehow more permanent or better, but I think this is kind of false. Certainly, when we think of electronic media in general, I was in the high school musical. There are only tape recordings of that that existed ever, which means that there essentially now exists no recording of that. Because <laughs> even if someone still had the cassette, who has the cassette player? And I think this is true with digital media formats as well. Maybe you once owned a large number of CDs, but good luck finding a CD player in a store now. Yeah, you know, 
now I'm thinking of all my high school basketball games and how no one is ever going to know about the time Bernard's High beat Newark Science. That's right. Now, I mean, that information specifically is quite obscure. And uh, so we may be able to accept those losses. <laughs> yeah, I think so. In, in general, there is this concept of bit rot, which is sort of the decay of digital information, uh, which we know can happen for those same reasons. Even if you can store, a CD will not last very long. It also needs to be stored in the right environment with the right temperature control. But the CD itself will decay. But even if it lasted 100 years, you need a CD player 100 years from now to play it. And in terms of something like a PDF, in an uncertain future, even if we have a storage medium that can hold that file, we'll always need a machine that can read it and software that can read it. So I think there really is an argument to be made against relying on digital. Tim, do you think, can I ask you a question? Yes. Because I think you're, you might uh, know the answer better than I do. Do you think the same risk of bit rot holds true with cloud storage? Absolutely. So cloud storage seems very secure, but in fact, we know that it's subject to malicious attack has been reported in the news recently. Of course, there are redundancies in place, but there are also doomsday scenarios that exist that could put us in a digital dark age. There's a really interesting podcast from On The Media about this, which I would recommend listeners go check out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, great. Recently, Amazon.com opened a brick and mortar retail store. This seems so amazing to me. So it seems the paper is experiencing some resurgence. I wonder if how you feel as a historian, if this is comforting to you. I think as a reader. As a reader. It's comforting. Um, you know where I first came across Nicholson Baker's Double Fold? No. Tim? It was in a brick and mortar store. It wasn't an Amazon store. It was a used bookstore right. in New York City which is a city that's still blessed with a lot of brick-and-mortar stores, although many fewer than I, than I think it used to have. But it was one of those finds, you know. I, I was just browsing on a shelf, and it was serendipity, I guess you could say. The kind of serendipity that happens when, you're, when you can sort of physically browse through books. Instead of algorithmic recommendations. Yeah, which I also use, and I think we all use. Well, of course, yeah. They seem to work. But I, I agree. If I'm shopping for a new book, often it's just like, these are books by authors you've read before. And <laughs> where is the discovery in that? I mean, you have better chance asking your friends what's a nice book. or there's something, there's something magical about books. There's something romantic about paper, I think we can say. I agree. I agree that there is something romantic about paper. In my own experience... There's something far less romantic about the shipping bills as I move from city <laughs> to city all over the world to try and transport those books. I've lost a lot of that magic, it's true. Although there is something romantic about seeing the container ship stock in the Hong Kong port. Oh, there you go then. 
All right. So, Diana, thank you so much for being on the show. So my guest today is Dr. Diana Lumberg, Assistant Professor of History at Lingnan University, authoring the forthcoming book, Barriers Down, Freedom of Information and American Power, coming from Columbia University Press. Diana, thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. The website for Thoughts and Feels is drtimweatherspoon.com slash podcast. There you can find links to people and articles discussed in the episode. You can subscribe to Thoughts and Feels on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, thanks for listening.